Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today, November 1st, is the first day of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. And so we have literary agent Carly Waters on the podcast today to answer all of your questions about writing a book, fiction trends, and getting published. But before we get into that, Olivia, let's do some highs and lows. Tell me your high. I don't really have like a super fancy hive, but I feel like I made a good plan this week for like the future with house stuff. I kind of like outlined with Jake what projects we're going to work on. I just feel like for the past six months, we've kind of been like a little more relaxed about stuff just so we could like save money, pay off our credit cards. And so going forward, I feel like we have a good plan. Like I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Will everything take more time than I expect. Absolutely. But at least I feel like I'm clear about that. So yeah, just a little high, but it felt good. Do we, the people, get a sneak preview? What is the next in line project? Well, the next in line big project is that we're finally going to, in the new year, uh, finish the guest bathroom. (laughs) So maybe you can come visit and I won't be embarrassed in the spring. Yeah, that's very exciting. Okay. That's my high too now. (laughs) Uh, Stay tuned. We'll see how that works. I'm sure it will take us nine years to get in contact with the contractor. But anyway, what is your high? You just added something to the outline as we hit record and I need to know what it is. But anyway, tell me about your high. I have like five small highs. Oh, wow. So I went to New Orleans. It was great. My friend Rachel's birthday party was incredible. She had this like Motown cover band. They were singing all divas like Whitney, Mariah. It was so good. The food was so good. The commitment to theme, it was 90s themed, was so good. It was just such a blast. I love that bar, by the way, that bar that the party was at. Oh, fun. Yeah. Also, while I was in New Orleans, I had a top three sandwich of my life. I had a spicy muffaletta from from Verti Marte, which is like the sketchiest looking. It looks like a gas station. It was the sketchiest looking place I've ever eaten food from, but it had came highly recommended. It was incredible. And I feel like we've talked about this before. I'm allergic to sesame seeds and the bread from Muffaletta has sesame seeds. So I like had to pick the top layer of the bread off and it was so worth it. It was so good. That sounds delicious. Then my next mini high, I just have so many of them, is I'm back in New York City for a full week and weekend for the first time in quite a while. So I'm really excited to just be home. And I feel like the clouds are clearing mentally with regards to my focus. I've felt really unfocused kind of the couple weeks before my book came out and really up through last week where I just felt like I couldn't write. And so I'm really determined to finish my first draft of book two. My goal is to finish it by the end of the month, the end of October. So hopefully oh, I've like already done that when this airs. I'm so close. I have 88,000 words. Like I'm like there. So I have five and a half more chapters, right? Like I'm like there. So I'm like doubling down on that. And then my last little high, which is the one I just added that Olivia's curious about. So right before we recorded, I went over to Word bookstore in Greenpoint, which is one of my local indies and is where we're doing signed copies of the Christmas Orphans Club. So I went over there to sign a bunch of books. And as I was leaving, I was talking to one of the booksellers and she was saying that they do pre-order campaigns for a lot of local authors. And she was saying that the people who have bought copies of the Christmas Orphans Club and like my fans 
are like the nicest and most enthusiastic fans that she has seen. And that made me so happy. Oh, that's awesome. Your fans. I love My it. fans. But just, you know, I think a lot of them are probably listeners who are excited. I, I'm just... That's so nice. You reflected well on me. And I was very honored. <laughs> oh, I'm happy for you. That's a great story. There are fans. Yeah, I know. I've met them of the book. I told you I went to England and people were there with your book, just reading it about and talking about how much they loved it. But we have third party verification that they are the best fans, that they are both the nicest and the most enthusiastic ones. And as somebody who can make anything a competition, I'm honored. (laughs) Well, good. Their win is my win. (laughs) What about on the low side? My low is that last week I had to drive, well, Jake and I both had to drive to Maryland for a funeral. When I was in England, my aunt passed away suddenly and Jake's uncle passed away suddenly within 24 hours of each other. And so both very unexpected. And yeah, it's for my family in particular, it's just been a very hard year with my uncle and May and my aunt. And Yeah, it was great to see my family, but I wish that we would stop meeting that way for for lack of a better term. So anyway, it was just, it was sad, but. I'm so sorry. And if your mom, Kim, is listening, I am sending lots of love to you. I mean, I'm sending love to you too, Olivia, but I'm also sending love to her who's lost two of her siblings this year. I think she'll very much appreciate that. What is your low? Ugh. I am having some house anxiety. So what does this mean? If you've been here a while, you will remember that in the summer of 2022, they put my building on the market to sell. And I think they're getting ready to put it back on the market again. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's unclear. Oh, man. They set up an inspection for two of the units. And we have like third-party intel through the super, not the landlord, that they're showing it to one potential person. And so I'm unclear if they're just showing it to this one person opportunistically or if they're like truly putting it back on the market. So anyway, yeah, we'll see what happens. And if, you know, if they sell the building, what that means, you know, if the new owners want to keep the tenants or if they want to, you know, knock down the building, jack up the rent, kick us all out, who knows? So stressed. I feel slightly better about it this time because through the last time I've been able to process a lot of my feelings and I knew that this was a potential possibility. So it sucks. We have a group chat for like all of the people in the building that we're, we're like collective actioning. We're like, see what we can do. Um, but yeah, it's stressful. That is so stressful, but I get it. Like you've kind of been through all the emotions before. (laughs) Yeah. And you've been through like, okay, if if this happens, then I need to do this or and that and that. So it's not as much of a shock, but it still, you know, it still sucks. Hopefully it comes to nothing once again. I hope so. I hope so. Well, let's get into this episode. We are so excited to have Carly Waters with us today. She is an SVP and senior literary agent at PS Literary, and she is also the co-host of what is probably my number one favorite podcast about writing called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. You've definitely heard me talk about it here before. She also shares her insights on the publishing industry on social media, and you can find her on Instagram and TikTok at Carly Waters. Carly, welcome. Welcome. 
Thank you so much, guys. I am so thrilled to be here. I am also fans of both of yours. And Becky, you've been on our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. So I'm so glad to be on your show. So thank you for having me. Well, we have tons of questions for you that our listeners submitted. And kind of the context for our conversation is November is National Novel Writing Month. And for those of you who are not familiar, the goal is to write 50,000 words in 30 days, which comes out to, if you're doing it every single day, 1,666 words a day. There's a huge online community around NaNoWriMo, which is the abbreve for it. And it's actually been the start of some of my favorite novels. I was reading on their website that The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern came out of NaNo, With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo, The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory. So I think that a lot of the writers in our audience probably have some new projects in the works, or maybe you're using this time to shore up some old projects and get them over the finish line. So we wanted to bring on Carly today to answer all of your questions about the publishing industry, about writing, about trends, etc. I am so excited to have you, Carly. To start off, you've done some very interesting trend reporting in terms of what you're seeing for fiction books. So what are you seeing right now for the near or even further future? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I simultaneously paid very close attention to trends, whether it is things coming into my inbox, whether it is things that I'm seeing on, you know, in terms of the deals that that publishers are making, things I'm seeing in the bookstore. I really try to pay attention to that. And then I also try to throw it out the window because like while there is so so much value from my perspective as a business person in the industry regarding trends. There's very little value when I'm talking to clients and we're talking about trends. And so, for example, you know, one of the things, the trends that really we saw a lot of over the past few years was World War II. We saw a lot of World War II books over, you know, over the past number of years. And that is one category where like, you know what, if a client is going to write a World War II book and how different does it have to be? Can we pivot into a different category? You know, I that was one category. I'm like, okay, yeah, I think I think we've seen enough of that. Or domestic suspense. We saw a lot of domestic suspense, you know, again and again and again. And it was like that total one-upmanship, right? It's like, mine's going to be like an unreliable narrator who was this, that, and this, you know? And so it's like all of this like one-upmanship and there's no titles left. The wife upstairs, the the woman on the train, like there's no combinations left for titles. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the trend conversation is always really, really interesting to me from, from both perspectives. And is there anything that you see on the horizon that you think we're going to start seeing more of, even just as readers? You know, it's so interesting, as I said, because from what I see versus what's, you know, selling and being published, I'm really curious about the kind of wave of, you know, dystopian or like cli-fi, that's a short form for like climate fiction, like climate change and and what we're going to kind of see Mm -hmm. in terms of how we are going to use fiction and escapism and a tool that's going to address our future in kind of in new ways. So I'm really curious about that. Really what we're seeing, you know, the trend that really took over this year was romance, just like romance fiction in general, readers loving it, TikTok loving it, you know, there was just some data that came out from the Writers Guild in terms of which type of authors make the most money in this business. It's romance authors, but they also put the most amount of work in. They put two days a week of their business hours into marketing their book. So romance, you know, the romance industry is is super interesting to kind of look at in terms of, you know, what's doing really well. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of always 
one of the things in terms of like broader business trends, I think I'm really interested in is this idea that there was this huge boom during the pandemic of people at home reading, couldn't go anywhere, stuck in their houses, which was like just awful as a society and just great for the book business. You know, it's like everybody was picking up their books. Everybody was getting into audiobooks. Everybody had so much time to consume content. And so the book business and TikTok, right? And, and book talk really took off in that time. So we saw this huge upswell of the book business doing phenomenally well. We also knew that those numbers could not sustain themselves. It was just impossible. So now what we're seeing this year is the kind of stabilization or kind of returning back to those pre-pandemic numbers in terms of book sales. And so the industry is really trying to figure out where do we go from here? Is this our new normal? You know, how much can we really rely on TikTok to float our entire business? And what's going to be the way forward? So I'm really, I'm really curious. I do feel like we're at a turning point. And I mean, there's a million things I could talk about in terms of AI and how that's influencing the business. You know, there's, there's just, it's a very interesting time. I will say that. Having said that, you know, we've heard that a lot of people have said that it's harder than ever to sell a book. And maybe that has something to do with the changing landscape like you talked about. But I guess the first question is, do you find that to be true? Or why do you think people will be saying that? Oh, yeah. I feel like this was a really tricky year. And I say this like behind closed doors. I tell people this on Instagram, you know, I'll tell whoever. I, I do think it was a really, a really hard year. And some of it has to do with the fact that there were a number of layoffs this year in terms of different like publishing divisions being kind of combined, things merging into one another, a lot of people leaving the book business in terms of editors that I've known for a long time. Two projects that I sold this year. I sold them to an editor. And by the time we got to the contract stage, both of those editors had left. And, you know, my clients, they call it kind of being orphaned. You know, I'm putting that in air quotes, this idea that like whoever we sell the book to isn't the ultimate kind of editor that's working with it. So there's just so much kind of in flux. There's also a lot of like unionization and labor rights and just making sure people in publishing are paid living wages so that they can do these jobs and not have to have second jobs and, and all of that sort of stuff. So like a lot of pressure, I think a lot of just like realization of, the amount of work that goes into creating books and the pressure that this is putting on people. So I think that less books were bought this year. I definitely think so. And I think that with a lot of these mergers and acquisitions, I think publishers had to really look to how they're going to publish into the future, how they're going to publish into this new future, as I'm talking about with you know this new normal after I don't know if we can call things post-pandemic these days or what you know terminology we're we're calling it, but yeah, just kind of moving into the future because the reality is the book business is doing well. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. People are you know definitely making money. You know deals are definitely happening, but I think publishers are being really shy about what they're investing in, and so yeah, it's been a tough year. And have you seen that bear out in terms of your own business? Like, have you been signing fewer clients? And or have you been making fewer deals than you have in years past? Mm, I feel like this is a tricky one for me to answer because I've been doing this about 14 years. So I have had, you know, my own client list since 2010. And so my client list is relatively full, I would say, in terms of signing new clients. So I'm always, you know, looking at the slush pile still, you know, reaching out to, you know, different experts and journalists on social media. I'm still going to conferences. I did one conference this year. So I'm, I am kind of open to new projects, but I do have a pretty full roster. I also get a lot of referrals these days. So like clients who, you know, so-and-so is looking for a new agent in terms of a friend of theirs or a colleague is working on a book. So 
I haven't signed as many clients this year in years past, but that might have something to do with the fact of where I am in my career as well. Let's take a quick ad break. So I have never considered myself someone with good hair. My hair is, it's pretty fine. I don't have a ton of it. And when I try to air dry it, it literally looks like something you would find on the side of the road. It's like frizzy, nothing mess, partway between curly and straight because I've completely ruined my natural curl pattern with heat styling over the years. And I pretty much reconciled myself to this life of just having okay hair. And then I started using pros about three years ago. And I swear to you, my hair has changed so drastically for the better. And I have never gotten more compliments on my hair than I have since I started using my pros custom shampoo and conditioner routine. My hair is smoother, it is shinier, I have less frizz, and because Pros lets me go longer between washes, I think I have more hair because I'm not styling it as frequently and leading to breakage. Here's how it works. You get started with their in-depth hair quiz, which asks you about everything from your hair goals to your styling routine and exercise routine so they can get the full picture. Then they analyze over 85 factors to come up with a completely custom formula to address your needs. We both get the Corsica scent, which is an Anjou pear, peony, and cedar scent. And I swear it smells like a luxurious Italian spa. And I really appreciate that Pros is a carbon neutral certified B Corp and an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. And perhaps best of all, trying Pros is completely risk-free. If you're not positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Custom, made-to-order hair care from Pros has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash B-O-P. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Before we scare everyone who's out there writing this November, let's talk about some writing routine stuff. So are there particular books that you recommend about writing? Yeah, I think, you know, there's some of the classics, like I think Stephen King's On Writing is a great, great book. I used to always recommend Bird by Bird. And then somebody told me some of the essays aren't so ready for 2023 that maybe they're a little bit dated in terms of their PC qualities. And so I haven't read that book in a long time. So I always recommend Bird by Bird with a grain of salt because I haven't read it in a while. And in terms of other craft books, I think Craft in the Real World is a really good book. Matthew, I don't, his last name is like Celesi or something like that. Matthew Celesi, Craft in the Real World or Writing in the Real World. That's a really, a really good one. Oh, that's so interesting. I haven't heard of this one and I am a, I'm a slut for craft books. So I'm going to have to (laughs) I'm going to have to get this one. Yeah, Catapult. They have kind of a collection of, of, of writing books. And I think it's part of are part of those. It's a purple cover. I remember purple cover. Okay, we'll find it. And we'll put it in the show notes so people can find it easily. Here's a question I think would be interesting for all of us to answer. We had a lot of riffs on the same theme. People wanting to know, what is the best way to discipline yourself into actually forming a writing routine? And this is the most simplified version of this question, but we had a lot of people talking about, you know, how do I do NaNoWriMo when I have a full-time job? How do I do it when I have kids? Like, what have you seen, Carly, for your clients is the best way to actually get it done? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So I used to teach a workshop through Writer's Digest about how to write a novel in a month. Because the thing about, so I call it NaNoWriMo. I know some people call it NaNoWriMo. And so anybody listening, like comment and tell us if you think it's NaNoWriMo or NaNoWriMo, because I feel like I'm the one that's wrong, but I can't train myself to say it the other way. So I've heard you say it before, and I actually just thought it was a cute Canadian thing. I was about to say, is it maybe Canadian? I don't know. I don't know. Because obviously it's like National Novel Writing Month. So it makes sense for it to be like Rye. But I have to say Re. I don't know why. That does make sense. It's okay. We know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So that is trademarked. So when I was teaching that course through Writer's Digest, I wasn't allowed to call it a NaNoWriMo workshop. I had to call it How to Write a Novel in a Month. So, So I've taught like kind of a course around it. And not from the place of, you know, Obviously, I'm I'm an agent and I'm not an author, but I've thought really critically about what it takes, obviously, to make this type of commitment. It's a massive commitment. And so I think about, you know, when I wrote up this course, and I'll give you some of the, you know, I'll give you some of the highlights. But when I wrote this course, I really thought about, you know, different people of where they are in their life. You know, I think depending on where you're at in your life, this can come more easily or not so easily. Um, I think, you know, if you are a parent of children or you have elder care responsibilities, like there's just so much in our lives, I think that that really come into play when we think about routines, especially in a condensed time period, like writing a novel in November. So some of the things that I always recommend are a meal service, like a HelloFresh, you know, like a food service box. I think that can be a huge weight off your shoulders you know, if you don't have a partner or a spouse or somebody else, a roommate to kind of, you know, carry out the cooking to make sure you're fed that month. I think a food box, a food delivery service can be a huge, huge weight off your shoulder. So I, I usually always recommend that or like grocery service, you know, just getting it delivered that month, really making a commitment to your health in terms of like getting enough sustenance in your body so you can maintain it. I also talk a lot about kind of that that idea of like rhythm. And I think, you know, writers obviously know this, but this idea of like you know, do you light a candle before you sit down and you like prepare the space and what does your space look like? Or if there's like a talisman or if you're like a gem person, if you have, your, you know, you know, your crystal set up or like whatever the thing is that really sets you in the mood and in the place. I think that's really important. I recently saw this TikTok and there's kind of a series of TikToks about kind of critiquing this whole idea of men taking on marathoning and ultra marathoning and how that is a sexist oh, yeah. thing to to put the pressure on the spouse to be like, I'm going to go take on this huge endurance hobby. And now you're the one that has to take care of like the cooking and the kids. And anyway, so it's been really, that discourse has been super interesting on the internet. And so in reverse, I'm thinking about writing, right? As the person. So if you're going to take on endurance hobby, which really is writing, what are the responsibilities that you have to kind of set up within your family unit to make sure that, you know, you can support your partner. If again, if they are the ones that put the kids to bed every night, because you need that as your writing time, what is the trade-offs and just really talking about the mental load in your own household to get things done, I think is just a a really important thing because it's such a condensed time period. Olivia, what about you? Do you have any advice on how to discipline yourself into actually doing it and forming a routine? Me? Oh, gosh. Yeah, you. The person who has <laughs> written and is publishing a book. Don't who me, me. I'm, I'm feeling sort of stuck writing-wise at the moment. So maybe this is a good way to remind myself. But I find generally if I want to get something done consistently, I have to do it as early in the day as possible. I mean, that's kind of a basic tip, but... Well, just knowing um, your rhythms. Like, I feel like know when you are at your most productive and don't, you know, I feel like sometimes you might have to just pick the time before your kids are awake or after they go to bed, but like also know your own rhythms. 
Yeah. And you and I talk all the time about how like, if you don't start before noon, it's just not getting done. But I think if you're able to get work done at a time where there aren't emails coming in, there aren't phone calls or texts in general, that's always going to serve you. I know that's not possible for everyone, but it's definitely been true for me. What about you, Becca? I feel like my biggest thing, I'm a calendar person, is putting it in your calendar as if it's an appointment that you have with any other person, like it's a doctor's appointment or an important meeting that you have for work. And so when I was writing The Christmas Orphans Club, I was working West Coast hours. And so from 10 to noon every day was my writing time. And I had it in my calendar. And if for whatever reason, if I had an actual doctor's appointment or something like that, then I would need to find somewhere else to move that slot in the day. But actually having it in my calendar and like not letting myself cancel it Monday through Friday was really important to me. I also have a habit tracking app on my phone. I think it's just called Habit. It's a kind of pink icon with a check mark. And I have in there, my goal right now is to write four days a week. And so I get to like check it off after I do it. And just that little like digital dopamine boost is like a really good motivator for me to make sure that I know that I have to do it or else I'm going to have the uncolored um, check mark and I'll be so disappointed in myself. So I think that's really cheesy. I also really believe in bribing yourself. There were a lot of times that I bribed myself with candy during writing my first book. I was like, if you write however many words you have to write today, you could have a, a handful of Halloween candy or whatever it is. Or, whatever you know, works. Your daily diet Coke that you feel guilty about or whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, I suggested um, this year on Instagram, I was putting some notes together for NaNoWriMo. And um, I suggested doing an advent calendar for November. So it's like when you complete your writing task for that day, then it's like a little advent calendar thing. Oh, I love that. Now I want to make myself an advent calendar for just like basic tasks. Like, (laughs) I don't know, woke up, (laughs) checked the mail, whatever. That feels so satisfying. It's crafty and like satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And why should advent calendars be limited to just the holiday season is now my second question, but it's neither here I feel here like this there. could become a big procrastination tool as creating your own advent calendar. <laughs> <laughs> On the flip side of this question, we also had, how do you get over imposter syndrome and the general scaries and just start writing? And I feel like this is such a big one for people. And I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm curious to your thoughts too. I also feel like Carly is an agent. You probably get writers, your your clients who are like, I'm just like, it's not working. Like my brain isn't going to do it. I suck. Like, what do you say in response to that moment? I have a lot of mixed feelings about it because my job is to treat your career like a job. You know what I mean? And like, you know, I think there was a Gillian Flynn quote because she was a journalist and she always talked about like, there's deadlines and there's deadlines for a reason. And, you know, when you're a journalist, you don't just get to like not show up or just not turn it. You know what I mean? Like there is this workmanship with writing where I think it just, it's just like button the chair and just like get it done type of thing that, you know, that attitude that she takes. And so because this is my job um, and I take this very seriously as my job, I really, I'm super gentle, obviously when people have writer's block. It's a real thing. And I don't, I don't discount that it's a, it's a real thing. It usually comes from a place, you know, deep down and I am not a therapist. Have I had to play therapist many times? Absolutely. But I really try to get at the root of it, you know? And so if we're moving deadlines or something's going on, you know, trying to figure out 
what is the reason? Because I think most things can be figured out if there is like a root cause of the issue. And obviously, you know, deadlines can be moved, but in order to get things done, they have to get done. And I often call myself a recovering perfectionist. So like, I understand, you know, sometimes there's that idea that if you're not going to do something perfect, then like, why do it at all? And I think a lot of writers are type A people. A lot of writers are people who, you know, got A's in school. And so this idea that you're going to sit down and create a thing that's not going to be perfect is absolutely paralyzing. So there's a lot to work through depending on who you are. Yeah, I like that idea of getting to the root of why you're not doing it, because that is true. Like there's always a reason, but it often just feels like this sort of bigger than yourself, like, supernatural thing that you can't overcome. So that's great advice. Becca, what about you? How do you deal with imposter syndrome and all of that? I think there's a fallacy here that everyone who is doing it has gotten over this and or has found the tip or the trick or the thing that makes it easy. I see a lot of people asking this who haven't started writing yet how do I get over this? How do I get started? And it's like, once I find the tip that makes it easy, then I'll do it and it will be easy. And I think the answer is it's fucking hard. Like it's a hard thing. It's hard to write a book. It's hard to write a first draft. It's hard to polish a first draft. Like the whole thing is hard. And I think that thinking that other authors, and there are people who either say this on podcast interviews and either I hate them or they're lying. I'm not sure which, but it's like, I don't think it's easy for most people. You know, I don't think that most professional authors are like, yes, I sit down and it flows and everything is amazing and it's idyllic. Like it is a hard thing to write a book. And I don't think there's like a piece of advice or a mental state that makes it easier. You just have to do it. And I think it goes back to the, Olivia, the thing we always talk about with that Emma Straub, Jean Hamp Corlett interview where it's like, do you enjoy writing or do you enjoy having written? And like, for me, a lot of times it feels really bad in the middle of it because I'm like, this sentence is bad. This doesn't make sense, et cetera. And so it's like the act of having done it at the end, you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so much awe over this, but it doesn't feel great during it. Yeah. And like, even if you do enjoy it, that doesn't mean that it's easy (laughs) Mm -hmm. or completely painless either. And that's why I think something like NaNoWriMo is so helpful that you just throw yourself into it for 30 days. And if you stick to it, you come out with 50,000 words as opposed to, to call myself out. I've been writing the first draft of my second book for nine months and I've been sitting in it for too long and I just need to finish it because it's been painful and I need to move on to the next step. So yeah, I mean, I feel like there is something to be said for the ripping the bandaid method of like just getting it done and then you'll fix everything later. So After everyone who's listening writes their 50,000 words of a novel and gets to their first draft um, and wants to think about getting published, which I hope for everyone. After they do some intense editing, I've heard that December is the worst month to be an agent because everyone sends in their NaNoWriMo projects unedited and they're like, here you go. Want to represent me? Oh, is that true? I think one of the best things about the internet in terms of the book business and the service of writers is how much content there is you know, for writers these days. So I think that's one of the great things about your podcast, about my podcast, like the amount of resources there are for authors now and and aspiring authors, there's so much. And so quality, honestly, I will say this has gotten better over the past few years because there's just so much great information out there. So like when I get pitched something that is 
not up to par. It's just very clear they just like haven't been on the internet and they just haven't got the resources. So I think the quality of submissions has very much gone up over the years. Let's take an ad break. This episode is sponsored by Cozy Earth. Even though fall is one of my favorite seasons, I don't always enjoy getting dressed for it, actually. I love a good pair of jeans, don't get me wrong, but I love being comfortable even more. And sometimes denim is just not what I want to wear when I'm sitting at my desk and working all day. This is why I love Cozy Earth's loungewear. It's a kind of clothing I can throw on and still feel completely put together while feeling totally comfortable as well. I feel the same way about my Cozy Earth lounge set. And now I'm also equally obsessed with the pajamas, which sometimes I do work in as well because I just don't change. And in case you, yeah, it's normal. In case you aren't familiar with the brand, Cozy Earth crafts luxury goods that transform your lifestyle. All the products are made from responsibly sourced viscose from bamboo. And the brand has even been featured on Oprah's favorite things. Plus, all products come with an impossible to beat. 10 year warranty. Lately, I've been feeling a lot of anxiety about work and deadlines and balancing everything. And one weird trick I found when I'm procrastinating on things because I'm feeling anxious, which I know doesn't make sense, but it's something I do, is to change into my Cozy Earth lounge set. I feel confident, comfortable, and like there's nothing pinching or pulling at me when I'm wearing it that's only going to add to my anxiety. It sounds weird, but it really works and helps me focus. If you're looking for new sheets, loungewear, socks, or the perfect pair of pajamas, Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for our listeners today. Up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code BOP. Again, that's up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code BOP at CozyEarth.com. So... When writers have their first draft or their edited first draft or whatever, and they're thinking about beta readers, how should they choose who reads it? This is a great question. I think so often people really have the people in their lives read it. And then a lot of people in their life love them very much. And of course, they're going to say, this was great, you know, and obviously giving them some, some positive feedback. I think some of the best beta readers or critique partners are just going to be people who are at your level, if not above, you know, at a similar point, you know, in their career. They are just really just available on the internet. You don't even have to do this like in real life. Um, and so through our podcast, Bianca Murray hosts the great beta reader matchup, where if anybody is looking for a beta reader, she does these kind of seasonal matchup where she will people can, everybody kind of submits their genre and what they're working on and she'll match people up in little groups. So there are services out there. Obviously, you know, Bianca's is one of them called the great beta reader matchup, but there's lots of other, you know, beta reader services out there. A lot of them are organized through writing organizations. So if you write, you know, in the women's fiction category, women's fiction writers association, you know, they have, you know, beta kind of groups that they can set you up with. So I would say lean into community organizations to find the right match for you. Because again, the people in your life love you very much, but they're also not going to read your book three times, you know, give you notes. And sometimes the best things that beta readers can do is, you know, you can, if there's certain things that you want to flag for them to read, you can make a note like, you know, did this part surprise you? Or at what point, you know, did you not understand something? You know, you can also send notes and kind of quiz your beta reader on certain elements or facets of your book that you also think might need work. So I think that's one of the questions that I do get. And I always really feel for people because having the right critique group and right 
beta reader kind of combo is really just alchemy, right? Like finding a person that you can vibe with. And even though it's not collaboration in the sense of co-authorship, like it can be a really intimate relationship that you spend a lot of time with people. Yeah, I, I feel for people kind of trying to seek the right fit for that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the people who gave me the best feedback, I sent it to a mix of people who were either just like readers in my life who read in the genre. I sent it to a couple of friends who aren't even big readers just to get their opinion. And then I sent it to some people who had some type of writing experience. And I would say, hands down, the feedback that I got from people who were writing themselves was much, much more useful, detailed, and actionable. So we've gone through our self-editing. We've had beta reads. This person wants to know, how will I know when my manuscript is polished enough to query? This is the million-dollar question. You know, this always makes me smile because... Everybody thinks that they're ready way before they actually are. And almost everybody queries too early, but they don't know that they're querying too early until they get to look back and have that hindsight and be like, yeah, that wasn't ready. But it's like they can say, you know, they, they have a smile on their face like I do because there is no way to know what the future is. There, there just there is no way. And so I think the most important thing is obviously finishing the book. I do get pitched things that aren't done and that would be incorrect. So if it's a novel, making sure it's finished, making sure some sort of beta reader critique group of people has seen it, that would be very important. And writing a really strong pitch, you know, there's so much to be said for the pitch process. And I know there's a lot of anxiety, you know, in terms of writers being like, how do I make this stand out? Obviously it's, you know, a hugely important thing. Again, so many resources on, on how to write great query letters out there make your project stand out, just putting that pitch together and and really making a case for yourself. And, and I think any writers who feel like just stressed about the idea that like, I have to pitch this piece of art that I just created, as you guys know, the pitching never stops, right? It's like you pitch the book and then once you start promoting the book, you have to pitch it. And then you talk to, you know, the marketing team and you got to pitch it. You talk to publicists, you got to pitch it. Like every time you're meeting somebody new, they're going to say, what's your book about? And you have to pitch your book again. Like there, there's just no end to the book pitching process. And so you do have to be able to summarize your book quickly, um, you know, and in, in with enthusiasm. So it is a seal that everybody has to learn and the pitching never ends. Sorry to break that to everybody. <laughs> so this next one is a question from a listener and it says, I'm working on a memoir slash book of essays. Do I need to finish writing the entire manuscript before I start querying? What is the correct order of steps in the process? So the memoir story and essays or, you know, memoir and essays is a really interesting category because I believe your best chance of success is not only finishing the project, but also writing a proposal because nonfiction has to have a proposal with it because I have to understand what's the marketing plan? What are the comps, you know, really trying to get into the pitch part of it? Because the thing about nonfiction is that it has to fill a gap in the market and whether it's a memoir or not, there still is an element of marketability because Memoir does go in the memoir category, but when we're thinking about what's the hook of it, right, there is like, whether it's, you know, mental health or travel, like there, there's always another hook with it. And so there's a huge element of, you know, the pitching and the sales kind of putting together a book proposal because it's really a business plan. Like you want to go into business to sell this project. And so there is that kind of like business piece when we talk about memoir because it's nonfiction, but we also treat it like fiction because 
it has to read like a novel. It has to be something that, you know, is a page turner, is really well written. Those pieces are hugely, hugely important in the memoir process. So there's an immense amount of work that has to go into preparing and pitching those projects. So I feel like most nonfiction I'm pitched on proposal and that proposal includes three chapters. I think if it is ultimately an essay collection or a memoir in essays, you can pitch based on three chapters, but you have to outline the entire book. We have to know exactly where the entire book is going in order to kind of really see the marketability and the arc. And again, whether this project is going to deliver on what it says it's going to deliver. So yeah, there's a lot of work involved, but at the end of the day, if it's a memoir, for sure, write the whole thing. If it ends up being more of an essay collection, proposal could work, but yeah. So here's something I'm not sure I've heard you talk about on The Shit No One Tells You About Writing for the publisher side. The first question was, how do agents and publishers think about diversity? And then they said, is there a quota that they need to fill? Oh, you know, to my knowledge, I've never been told a quota. Even if there is a quota, I have never heard of it. You know, I think the depths and the root of this question are just so interesting and Um, you know, obviously deserve an entire podcast to itself because the root of most of the issues of which I think this question is getting at is the lack of diversity within the publishing house itself and within the agent community. Meaning as an industry of a lot of white people, historically like 80% white people, how can we see outside of ourselves and put ourselves in other people's shoes? And, you know, people who work in book publishing are incredibly empathetic people, right? We know that fiction creates a massive amount of empathy in people and understanding. A lot of people are incredibly willing to, you know, just completely open their eyes and, and work on projects from, you know, people of different backgrounds. But there's also the lived experience being from a certain culture and then working with authors within that culture. And, and just that known experience is just... Like I sold a client project who's from a certain background to an editor of the same background and listening to them talk, you know, just the three of us on the the phone, listening to the way that they were able to kind of communicate on certain elements of the story, which me as a white person would never, it would have never crossed my mind that that would have been something to discuss um, was just so fascinating and just completely eye-opening experience for me. So I'm a huge you know, advocate for just, you know, there are so many stories that need to be told. Are there quotas? Not to my knowledge. Then amount, I will say on the note of kind of, again, the employee type of diversity, I think that is going to create some more fostering of diverse voices through this relationship building I was talking about is that, you know, some statistics just came out from AALA, which is the um, Association of American Literary Agents, and that the amount of literary agents from diverse backgrounds was up this year. So like there are more diverse agents in the field working now, which is obviously, you know, great news because I do think, again, as much as, you know, I can open my eyes, I will not be able to have that lived experience. So those, these are the reasons that I think that we're just absolutely moving in the right direction. Are we moving at a snail's pace? Yes. But like we are moving in a direction that I think is positive. So we'll end with the question that I think most people are probably wondering, which is about deals and how much like an average author makes. Uh, So this person says, I know many writers keep their jobs, jobs before publishing a book, I assume they mean, but I can also rattle off a number who are not at an Ellen Hildebrand level, but are still pursuing writing books full time. So with an understanding that there are big ranges, what is the average deal that is made for a woman's fiction author? What's the typical annual salary for an author? 
help me understand this because no one seems to share actual numbers. Oh yeah, no, no, nobody will for sure. Or they'll inflate them, <laughs> underflate them where it's like, that's not a salary either, right? Because like we're paid, over, you know, authors are paid over a certain amount of time. So I think it's an incredibly interesting question. I mean, I think you can also look at the data. So the Writers Guild just put out the results of their survey and they do that. They do this survey every like three to five years and they just put out the results of the survey, which is that every year the number goes down of amount of money that authors make from writing, but it's always going up and being supplemented by teaching, coaching, workshops, journalism to kind of supplement what that salary looks like. So you really have to think about what does my holistic career look like as a creative human being? And really understand that the majority of your money is unlikely to come from your advances and your royalties. Is that a problem? No, you can still teach, coach, do journalism, like whatever the, you know, whatever, how you, however you build that creative life for yourself is really interesting. That said, a lot of people like to keep their day job because stability, health insurance, like you name it, there's a lot of reason, inspiration from, you know, having a day job and leaving your house and interacting with other humans that aren't creatives. You know, there's, there's a lot of benefits to having a day job. So do I know authors that write full-time? Absolutely. But you know what it takes to be able to write full-time? And I mean, write full-time, not teacher journalism on the side, which is writing pretty much have to write a book a year or book every two years. They have to be selling over a hundred thousand copies a year in multiple territories in again, multiple languages and, and really just connect with people. You know, that's really it. And I think a lot of people have incredible books that just don't take fire like other books. And do we know why that happens? No. You know, if we knew all that, everything would be a bestseller and this would be a very different conversation. So yeah, I, I really encourage people just to think holistically about that. And, and again, just because you get a huge advance one year, you have to think about how that is spread out over the course of the years that you get the advance, because usually it's a third on when you sign the agreement, you get some of the money, a third on delivering the final manuscript and when it's accepted by edits, you know, with edits from the editor, and then you get some money on, you know, when the book publishes, that could be spread out over multiple years, you know? Um, so there, and, you know, pay taxes and pay your agent and, you know, all these other things. So as I said, I encourage people to think really holistically about the creative life they want to live. And this idea of like, you're going to be a professional author who gets, everybody gets to be Ellen Hildebrand. And that's an incredible, incredible goal, but it's really just about, yeah, the greater life you want to live as a creative person and um, somebody that creates culture in our society. To give you an actual number from the Author Guild survey, this is for 2022 for romance writers who report themselves as full-time writers. And this is obviously a somewhat skewed sample size by who decided to respond to this. I know the bucket of 65 plus was very overinflated in terms of respondents. The reported book-related income per year is $31,725. And then the combined book and non-book related income was $37,000 per year. Romance was the highest category. I felt like that was the most similar to women's fiction, which the person asked. And to give you a comparison, mystery, thriller, and suspense, the annual book-related salary for people who report as full-time authors was 10,000. And then the total income, both book and non-book income was 15,000. So in other words, the Ellen Hildebrands make up the 0.1% of 0.01% of, of authors. 
Well, Carly, I cannot thank you enough for coming and sharing so much wisdom with us. I feel like if people have not already heard of your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, they are going to be flocking to it. I discovered it during the pandemic and it was one of my walk companions. I downloaded a whole bunch of of back catalog episodes with either guests that I recognized or titles and topics that I was like, oh, I want to learn about that. And it was so instrumental to me selling my book and navigating the publishing industry. So if you loved hearing from Carly, you need to go check out her podcast and you also need to follow her on Instagram at Carly Waters. Waters is spelled W-A-T-T-E-R-S. She posts usually multiple times a day on weekdays and has a lot of great industry trend reporting. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And if you're going to go into the back catalog, one of my favorite recent episodes that we did of our podcast was I talked about wrong shoe theory and how we can apply it to fiction. So any people who haven't heard of wrong shoe theory and fashion is this idea that in order to elevate an outfit, you pair it with the wrong shoe or wrong jacket, meaning like if you're wearing a sporty outfit, then you pair it with like high heels and, you know, how we elevate our outfits. Um, And I have a whole theory about how it applies to fiction. So that was one of my favorite uh, recent episodes. It's from our episode called Making Mindful Choices Regarding Characterization. And it was published on October 19th. Thank you, Carly. All right, Olivia, let's get into some end matter. I feel like from our texts, you have been just bubbling over with it's the true. need I'm to like, revisit. How much time do I have to revisit this topic from our three things episode? Oh man, my obsession is Tavis, Taylor Swift, and Travis Kelsey. I cannot, cannot get enough of them. Like every piece of content, every football game appearance, every photo, every outfit, hook it to my veins. I am invested. I am obsessed. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, is there a new photo of them? I can't even describe it to you. I see the little videos, little fan edits. I'm like kicking my feet and giggling. I am giddy. I am overjoyed for them. I want them to get married still. And I definitely think it's real now. If I was a little bit skeptical before because I'm jaded as a human in this entertainment world we live in. Anyway, I love them. I'm so happy that this is bringing you so much joy. (laughs) Do you think it's fake still? Yes. (laughs) What if they get married? I think they're going to get married. I'm just calling it now. Then I will believe it. I, yeah, I'm here to be proven wrong. All right. That's fine. But I don't think even if it is fake, like I don't think anyone's going to come out and be like, by the way, it was fake. (laughs) True. Well, yeah. Thank you for giving me my space to just gush about two complete strangers that I am completely invested in as a couple. The world is tough right now. Wherever you could get your joy, hold tight (laughs) to it. It's true. Speaking of, what is your obsession? I have an obsession and I have something I hope to be an obsession. Hmm. So the first thing is when I was on the flight to New Orleans, I caught up on podcast episodes. I would like to plug what I think is a perfect podcast episode. So you know that I love the A Thing or Two podcast with Claire Mazur and Erica Cerullo. We did cross promos with them. We did it because I love their podcast and like truly want to endorse it. So they had an episode on October 9th called Rats, Rain Clogs, and Romance. It is a discussion of a novelty minor league baseball team. Which is in your interest. Yep in my interests, these rain clogs that they have for like warm weather. 
and then romance novels. And I was giggling through this whole episode. I texted both of them after and I was like, this is a perfect episode. Like, hats off. I just, when you finish this episode, if you're like, what do I listen to now? Go listen to that. So sounds great. Great podcast episode. The second thing is I bought something that I have actively poo-pooed, actively said is not for me. I bought a pair of the Birkenstock fleece-lined Boston clogs, and I'm hoping to be obsessed with them. Like, yeah, like the shearling-lined ones. Oh, okay. Are they shearling on the outside? No, they're just brown, like suede on the outside. So I cannot explain to you what has come over me. I never had a particular feeling about this before. This year, unrelated to anything having to do with like my body, like it's not as if my back is weird or something. The intense need I have to have a slip-on fall shoe is Mm -hmm. sky high. Like nothing has ever been more critical to me than having a slip-on shoe. Like I used to wear my Rothy's or, you know, whatever, and it never, like, it never bothered me. Like, I'm like, if I have to bend down and like pull out the back of a shoe or lace something, I would rather die. I'm with you. So I have the Boston suede version. And here's my main complaint. You can't slip your foot into them because the suede is so like soft and thin. It like is floppy. So I think yours though are going to be more firm though, because it sounds like there's more of a shape to them. Mine are the suede ones that are like, you wear them at the beach to roast marshmallows. I don't know. Hmm. That's. I mean, I've only had, I've only worn them twice, but so far they're holding their shape. I'm very into (laughs) wearing them with like cozy socks that go up higher. Like it's a a look that I actively poo-pooed, but like, oh I'm absolutely with you. My need for slip-on, slip-on non-summer shoes is just, has never been higher. This is why I keep considering buying Crocs. Just walk around my home outside because the Birkenstocks, anyway. You've made a much better choice. I keep getting ads for these sneakers and I think they're ugly, but they're sneakers that you you can just kind of like step into and they're they're plastic, oh, yeah. the weird plastic back. And I'm like, am I going to, is this next? <laughs> I get it. Every time I put on Converse, I'm like, is it really worth this? But then I keep doing it. Yeah. So we'll see. I'll keep you updated. I don't know if it's different with the clogs and with the sandals, but everyone warns about how hard they are to break in. And maybe it's just because I'm wearing them with socks. But I mean, I, I've only worn them to the grocery store to Pilates, but like I haven't found them uncomfortable at all. No. Well, good. Yeah. What about reading? Tell me what you've read. So I'm finishing up The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff to circle back to a topic we talked about a few weeks ago. And I have Can a lot you of tell different feelings that it was about locked this in book. a box. <laughs> No, but like, it's a really interesting reading experience because half the time I'm like, wow, this is incredible and immersive and the language is beautiful. And half the time I feel like I'm reading like ye old English hmm. um, because it's it's set in, I guess, the 1600s. And um, it's about a servant girl, I think, or a maid who escapes from her like colony and goes out into the wilderness. It is incredibly graphic. It's like whatever the opposite of light is. It's incredibly scary. (laughs) It's really, there are a lot of descriptions of peeing and pooping throughout Mm. and just general violence. I totally understand why she's won all of these awards, but am I smart enough to get all of it? Perhaps not. Hmm. 
What have you read? So on the polar opposite side of the spectrum, (laughs) the definition of light, I am reading, or I just finished this morning, a book called Do Your Worst by Rosie Danan. Is it Danan or Danan? I thought it was Danon. So, well, here we are. So this Choose is the your same, fighter. <laughs> this is the same author who wrote The Roommate and the Intimacy Experiment, which are some of the steamiest books I've ever read. And so this is her new one. It is set in Scotland. It is about an archaeologist and a curse breaker who are at a castle in Scotland. Uh, she's there to break a curse that is turns out to be a, a horny curse. And oh, so, you have me at Castle in Scotland. I'm I did. In. You didn't need horny curse. <laughs> I mean, that did make it better. <laughs> and so, you know, the curse is pulling her towards this guy, even though he's her enemy. So it's like an enemies to lovers. We must work together thing. It, it sounds like it should be so cheesy. And it is at times. But it is like really well written in the emotional arcs in it like do have depth. And so I picked it up as like a light palate cleanser. And I've been really surprised by the depths of it. I'm really enjoying it. It doesn't come out until November 14th, which kind of feels like a miss for October that it should have come out in time for spooky season. But if you're like still riding the spooky vibes, um, mm-hmm. definitely check still this fall. one out. Yeah. Fall vibes or, you know, Scottish castle vibes. Yeah. It's like really good smut. Oh, great. Yeah. So well, if neither of those interests you, May I suggest you read our November book club pick, which is The Christmas Orphans Club by someone named Becca Freeman, who I hear has some of the best readers ever. (laughs) The nicest. What was the word? The nicest and the most... Enthusiastic. The most enthusiastic. I can vouch for that firsthand, especially because I'm one of them. So I'm really just complimenting myself. Anyway, that's our November book club pick. Read it. Join us. I'm excited to chat, Becca. I know it'll be it'll be so much holiday cheer. Also, if you have questions, send us a voicemail because I would love listener participation too and to talk about the things that you're most interested in hearing because this will be kind of the only spoilery thing we do. You know, I promise we're never going to talk about spoilers outside of this one episode. So if you have spoiler questions, like let's get into it. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 843-405-3157 or record a voice note and email it to us at badonpaperpodcast at gmail.com. And then also I'm going to give a plug for our Geneva group, which is coming along, growing, and especially Geneva is like a chat room type app, but especially if you're looking to connect with people locally to like make a local book club or to go to local book events, there's different rooms for a bunch of different cities. And if you have a request, I'll make one for your city too. And it's been so fun to get to see like, I don't know, our listeners in Akron, Ohio plan to meet up or like people in Sacramento talking bookstores. So it's, it's very fun if you're looking for local, like-minded, bad-on-paper listeners to become friends. Yes. And if you still want to join or talk in the Facebook group, that's an option too. We're Bad on Paper Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm Olivia Mentor on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.